You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focus the Driven. Joining me as usual and after what I presume was a very pleasant boat trip up in Queensland somewhere is David Leach. Um, I hope you're well, David. Perhaps you can tell us what happened on the yacht when the wind didn't blow. Uh, Giles, I am well. I trust all our listeners are well. I won't bore them with uh, my week's sailing adventures on the Whitsundays, uh, including the fact that the stove blew up, uh, uh, causing one of our chefs to uh, need a stiff drink, an even stiffer drink. Uh, But but, uh, all's well that ends well. The Whitsundays is a beautiful place I can recommend to everyone, but it's not as interesting or exciting as as the uh, energy market, is it really? And haven't we got a great guest uh, to talk about that today? Well, we do, but I was kind of interested to know what did happen when the wind doesn't blow, because this is kind of what um, our guest um, this week has been sort of trying to figure out with the electricity grid. Um, David Osman is one of the founding employees from WinLab, um, Chief Engineer, I think your description is, um, your title is now. Yeah, um, close enough, Principal Engineer, I think they say, but... Principal engineer, well, congratulations, um, and thank you very much for joining the podcast. Now, David, um, you wrote a uh, contributed item for us about your fifty-two weeks of study on the grid, and basically focused on how much storage does a grid with 100% renewables need. And I've got to say, it's been the most read story on our website for the last few months, Um, a whole heap of comments. Um, So thank you very much for doing that. It was an incredibly detailed study. You did a weekly report on a a level of wind and solar in the grid and what that would mean for the storage. Before we get to the results, what on earth possessed you to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, a couple of years ago, I actually I published another article for you on a 96% renewable grid. And and to be honest, you know, like a lot of these 100% renewable studies or near 100% renewable studies, they get published and not many people read them and and they disappear from a lot of people's attention. Whereas I notice online, people will say, well, two days ago, there was very little wind, very little solar. We would have been... Uh, in a lot of trouble if we had been mostly relying on those. And I thought, well, it'd be nice to have a simulation that's almost real time so that whenever people say there was very little wind or solar that day, well, we can show them that actually we probably could have managed to get through or or if we couldn't, then uh, then we may not have needed back, much backup generation. So that was my main motivation. I, I just wanted to have a near real time model to show people that um in that getting to near 100 percent renewables is actually reasonably uh quite achievable mm. yeah um, and you often find with these projects they sound off they sound like a great idea when you start but then they become kind of all-encompassing and sort of almost will take over your lives is that sort of kind of happening with this uh, one? not too much actually I, I one of the things i wanted to do with this model was just make it really easy for me to run so that it only took a took a moment of my week to download the data click the run button and then 
post the results to Twitter, um, which is where I've been sharing the results. And and so realistically, um, it doesn't take much of my time. It's only when I engage too much in the comments afterwards that it starts taking up time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'd be pleased to know that um, nearly 100,000 people um, have read the story on the website, which is absolutely fantastic. So a lot more people are familiar now with um, what it means for the wind and solar grid and what how much storage. So just basically for the, for, for, for the benefit of this audience, can you just give us a bit of an overview um, about what your findings were and then I'll let David take over and maybe dive into some of the details. Sure. So I guess to begin with, I started off um, from previous modelling, I reckon about 60% wind, 45% solar is, is somewhere close to an optimal mix for powering our grid from mostly renewables. Uh, obviously 60 plus 45% doesn't equal 100% and that's because when you're optimizing to power a grid, mostly from renewables, you want to generate more than you use because it's much better to waste a little bit uh, rather than trying to save every last kilowatt hour that you generate. So I started off, uh, so every week I look at um, the wind and solar generation that happened in the previous week and I scale that up and I scale it up so that over the year, it would have generated approximately those 60% 25%, um, sorry, 60% wind, 25% rooftop solar, 20% utility solar. And so for example, wind is currently supplying about 12% of generation over the last 12 months. So I've scaled up wind by about a factor of five and similarly about a factor of four for utility solar and about a factor of three for rooftop solar. I think, David, it's important to, I think what you know, readers might be interested to understand is that you scale them up so that essentially over the course of the year, that wind and solar total roughly equals the current level of uh, total demand over the year. Is, is that right? That's right. Yeah. So the wind is scaled up so that it'll, over the course of the year, it'll meet about 60% of demand and the solar about 45% of demand. And so once I've done that scaling up, uh, Obviously, the wind and solar is highly variable and it doesn't look anything like demand. So you need you need storage and other things to get it to match demand. And so from our previous work, I knew, you know, approximately four or five hours of short term storage can do nearly all of that job plus existing hydro. And so that's what my model does. It scales up the wind and solar, then it uses 24 gigawatts and 120 gigawatt hours of storage to rearrange that solar and wind generation to match demand and then if there's any shortfalls it uses existing hydro and we're very lucky in australia that our existing hydro is highly dispatchable which means you can just switch it on and off as required um, and it can supply seven or eight percent of typical nem demand and so i feel a lot of those gaps with existing hydro and then, but it's not always enough to fill those gaps. And so I guess that's one of the goals of my simulation is to show we can get very close to 100% renewables just with that wind, solar storage and existing hydro, but also just to give an idea of, of how much of a shortfall is. And so, um, so my weekly simulations will show, oh, there was a shortfall of one or 2% this week and shows the graph where the shortfall happened on what nights, um, yes. And and uh, I, I you know this stuff uh, I, I've seen your previous version of the study and, and and a presentation of it at the uh, 100% uh, 
renewables conference that the ANU used to hold pre-COVID. And in fact, I've done my own similar studies. Uh, uh, it's quite interesting, though. I think there's also, David, isn't there, just before we move on uh, to some other bits and pieces of it that are interesting, is that there's a, a kind of seasonal component, which I know I personally care a lot about, that you would expect that winter heating demand will be quite high and that but the solar production goes down quite a lot in winter. Did, did your study show that? Absolutely. I mean, at the moment, I'm using demand as it actually was. So I, I haven't incorporated increased electrification for switching from gas heating to electric heating. Uh, but even using existing demand, we have a, the, a winter problem. So for those following my simulation, for pretty much seven months of the year, it's just nailing 100% renewables all through summer, uh, all through spring, and through the first half of autumn. And then you get halfway through autumn, and we start needing, uh, we start having shortfalls that I meet using this mythical other, which is some other form of generation. And so, yes, we end up with shortfalls all through the latter half of autumn and through most of winter. Uh, not every night, but just a lot of nights. Um, and and so yes that is clearly um as we switch from more gas heating towards electric heating that problem's going to be amplified yeah and it's it's not just uh i mean uh, residential heating i mean electrification in general uh, one of the things about scaling up i'd observe is that um uh, uh you can't exactly scale up wind 500 five times 500 percent on exactly the same sites, you know. Uh, but look, there's a whole lot of things you could say, and certainly uh, demand is going to increase. Um, and, you know, wind in Queensland is probably going to increase. I guess the obvious question to ask, and I'm sure it's been asked a lot, uh, and you've thought about it a lot, is uh, how would you contrast your study uh, with, say, the ISP, which, which is, you know, also a big study that looks at, gets to essentially uh, total wind and solar exceeding demand, even with a lot more demand, by about 2038 or something like that. Yeah, so I mean, there's a, a there's a lot of similarities between my study. Um, you know, uh, obviously, I haven't increased demand, so I, so my final you know, gigawatts of wind and solar are nowhere near the final levels of the ISP, which is almost double demand. Um, but yeah, and my study has a slight bias to wind. So as I mentioned before, it's 60% wind, 45% solar. And that's kind of because I'm using present day pricing where you know both wind and solar have a fairly similized levelized cost of energy. Perhaps solar is getting a little bit cheaper these days, but solar needs more short-term storage to, to help manage the um, intraday variations. Um, but uh, the ISP is obviously modelling out to 2050 where they expect solar to be considerably cheaper than wind. And so they end up with a higher bias towards solar than wind. Um, uh, Not in the short term, though, don't they? I mean, I think when we had uh, Nicola Falcon on to, uh, to talk about the ISP, uh, you know, we, uh, she, she drew attention to the fact that the uh, uh, wind is used a lot in the early years and the solar comes in uh, later. And uh, also, when we interviewed the guy from uh, NREL in the United States, and by the way, they've just done a massive 100% study, 
uh, of, of 100% renewables in the United States. I haven't had time to read in detail yet, but when we talked to them earlier, they made the contrast that high levels of wind need more transmission and high levels of solar need more storage. Is, is that something that aligns with your thinking? Yes, it does. Yeah. And so you're right. My study actually aligns very well with the ISP in 2033. We have very similar amounts of wind, wind solar and storage. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, the you know, solar is much more flexible in where it can be located. And, and obviously in Australia, we've got a massive bias towards rooftop solar, which doesn't need much transmission at all. Um, but the ISP as you go out into the latter years, the ISP starts introducing a lot more utility solar. Um, but again, it, it's it's much easier to locate a utility solar farm because the uh, the solar resource is much more evenly distributed across the country. Whereas wind, there's a much smaller selection of windy sites, and so yes, you do need the transmission to get to those um, more detailed uh, windy sites. Another general uh, sort of criticism uh, I've seen of all these studies, including the ISP, uh, uh, which has a lot more resources than 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 you are throwing at it than your study, of course, um, is, is that you don't have enough weather years. Yes, it looks okay on this year, but you know, if you if you pick some really bad weather year, then you know the lights would have gone out and 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 would all be ruined, type thing. How do, how do you think about that, not just in regards to your particular study, which does just look at one year, uh, but, 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 but more generally, because I know you've got a long history of, and a lot of expertise in looking at, uh, at weather and uh, wind capacity factors? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt you you would want to use uh, as many years as possible, and and the well, the simple simulation I've just published is just the one year, which is clearly not enough. Um, the, you know, the ISP does a pretty good job of mixing up its reference years and and matching them with above and below average demand years, and so, uh, you know, it's it's doing a, a yeah you know, clearly a far superior job to what my simple model does, um, but it. Yeah, you know, obviously this this transition is happening over a decade or two, or, and probably longer. Um, so yeah, as we as we start building out all this wind and solar, you know, we'll be collecting more and more data, and and the ISP will probably start using more reference years, um, and and getting a better handle of of just how much backup generation you need to handle those, you know, one once in a decade or once in two decades, wind and solar droughts. Yeah, and I'll hand back to Giles in a second, but just coming back to this point about transmission, which is, of course, the, the number one uh, sort of debate, I mean, uh, at the moment, um, um, you know, I guess your simulation really only takes, it doesn't really sort of think about transmission uh, as such. It just uses the, because you're looking at it at an M level, are you, not at an individual region level? Yeah, that's correct. For um for this for this really simple simulation where I wanted to run it nice and quickly each week, um, I, I had to make some simplifications, uh, and so one of them was I just looked at the NEM at the whole, which doesn't consider transmission constraints at all. Uh, the study that I published on Renew Economy a couple of years ago did treat each state individually uh, and and modelled into uh, interconnector constraints. Um, yeah, in the future, I'd like my simple weekly simulation to also incorporate those, 
but unfortunately I can't do that yet until Queensland has a little bit more um, diversification in its wind. At the moment it's really dominated by Cooper's Gap and if I just scale up the Queensland wind it'll it'll look like I've got gigawatts of wind all at Cooper's Gap and if Cooper's Gap happens to have a bad wind day my model would really struggle in in Queensland so uh, until we get a couple more wind farms going in Queensland then um, then I'll have to continue using my simple model. Yeah. That was going to be my next question actually did you actually put wind farms and solar farms in areas that they haven't already been or did you just simply scale up the current locations and and yeah yeah so I did just simply scale up the current yeah. locations and so that that's very um that's very right in a in a fully optimized grid uh, you know as the ISP does you know you you obviously want the wind and the solar spread out over a large area to capture different um, the different wind and solar regimes yeah, happening yeah. in various places. Yeah, so, and, and, and because Wind Lab is also, I mean, you guys are one of the preeminent sort of um, spotters and identifiers of potential wind resources. I mean, you guys are behind some of the best performing wind farms in, in, in the country. Um, so if you did have, if you did want to fill in the space in the grid about, you know, you know well, maybe you can talk about solar as well, but um, about where you'd put a, a whole bunch of wind where it probably isn't now, where would that be? Yeah, well, obviously, I can't say too much because I don't want to <laughs> give away wind away, yeah. <laughs> You don't have to give the exact locations, but for instance, um, you've got something up in Kennedy, which um, was going to be big Kennedy, but that's, it's, it remains a small Kennedy. And I remember your, your former CEO um, was on the, the, this podcast a couple of times sort of uh, boasting about its potential. I know that David has been, David Leach has been talking, you know, said, oh, North Queensland's fantastic. We should be building a big transmission line, linking that up with the rest of the rest of the country. So, but I mean, just broadly, I mean, is it sort of North Queensland? Is it West? in New South Wales? Is it in the middle of, um, you know, we're talk we, we, we keep hearing about these massive projects in Western Australia and um, north of Esperance. Um, yeah, well, is it offshore now? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, so certainly North Queensland is a clear contender because if you, if you look at all the data now, the North Queensland does behave quite differently to the rest of the NEM. Um, you know, and, and you know, it, you know, Queensland as, as a whole is pretty good, but North Queensland in particular is much better. And there was an article actually last week on what clarity. Uh, we had a very poor uh, period of wind generation not so long ago, and everywhere on the NEM was below average except for North Queensland. Uh, so that, that just kind of emphasises that, that North Queensland is important, but but obviously the um, you know, you have to weigh up the benefits of having that geographic diversity versus the the cost of general of uh, connecting. And the it. ISP, the ISP puts the most of the Queensland wind or a lot of it in the Darling Downs region. I just observe. But and David Giles asked about uh, offshore wind, which has seen a fantastic amount of early stage interest from big companies at the moment. I just wondered what your and Giles asked about this, so I hope I just repeat it. So I'm really interested to see what your view is about offshore versus onshore wind and 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 the mix. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I I don't really have that informed opinion. Uh, certainly, all the reports you hear are that, well, first of all, that it's going to have a high capacity factor, and and that's you know depending on what turbine they use, it's likely to be true. Um, and so, obviously, the higher the capacity factor, the the easier it is to incorporate in a mostly renewable grid. Um, but they also claim that it, it isn't well correlated with onshore wind. And unfortunately, I don't have an informed opinion on that. Um, you know, at WindLab, you know, we can do we can do pretty detailed simulations of anywhere in Australia, but we don't have, um, you know, in t 
it, when you go offshore, you know, the, these a lot of these offshore wind farms may be 5, 10, 15 kilometres offshore, and you need quite high resolution um, wind maps to to capture the difference between a wind farm that's um, that's uh, that's five kilometres offshore versus one that's one kilometre onshore uh, using the you know, reanalysis data that companies mm. like ourselves use. And but, but basically the idea though is that if you stuck a whole bunch of wind farms, you know, in, in Queensland, for instance, instead of putting three gigawatts at Cooper's Gap, which is sort of reasonably close to Brisbane, you put three gigawatts sort of spread over the north of Queensland. And let's assume that um, the offshore, um, you know, don't clash with the onshore wind turbines and you sort of put more gigawatts offshore somewhere. That basically means then that, at least in principle, those gaps, those wind droughts, you know, the Dunkelflauts, as the Germans calls them, are going to be less apparent um, under those scenarios. Is that right? Yeah, well, certainly, uh, certainly, you know, increasing the geographic diversity helps as much as possible. And so even though I don't have detailed information on offshore wind data, um, I suspect that, you know, it will add to the geographic diversity. And also, actually, just going back to your question before, Tasmania is actually a little bit different to the other states. It's it's not quite as special as North Queensland, but it, it's it's still fairly special. And so, having having a bit more wind in Tassie is quite helpful. Um, and also, it um, um uh, the other thing about Tassie is that if you put wind in Tassie, it frees up some of that hydro to be used to firm the rest of the NEM, if you like. So. Uh, I've always been a fan of, um, of freeing up Tassie's hydro to be used to help firm the rest of the NEM. If you look at the ISP wind traces, uh, you, you, uh, you can see that Tasmania actually has even higher capacity factors uh, in some locations than, uh, than North Queensland as, mm. from, what I, from their traces. Just getting back to, I'm, I'm starting to feel bad about my headline now about, you know, how, you know, 100% renewables, you don't need that much storage. I mean, I think the truth to say is that you can get actually really, really close to 100% renewables and not that much storage. But um, going back to that sort of big drought that you found in the middle of winter, basically not much storage covers you for most, or nearly all the time, like 98, 99%. And this is a similar finding that was made by the CSIRO in their recent report, which sort of suggests that you leave surprisingly little storage at about 50, 60, 70%, and then great increases and it's the last few percent which is really hard and that's also the basis of some of the ISP scenarios so if we were to go 100% I mean how much extra storage would we need do we need another couple of snowy hydros do we need 10 million electric vehicles or do we just not worry about it for the last one or two percent because we've kind of done most of the hard yards yeah well I mean I mentioned in the article that you know to, to get through that rough patch in winter we needed a bit over 800 gigawatt hours of storage. So that's you know, a bit over twice Snowy 2.0. Um, but we needed about uh, you know, six and a half gigawatts of storage generation capacity. So that's over three times Snowy 2.0. Uh, but there are indications that last winter was probably a little bit easier to get through than most winters. So I think if um, you know, I, can, I plan to continue to um, running my weekly simulations going forward and us but I suspect there's a reasonable chance next winter or at least one of the next few winters might be quite a bit harder than, than the winter that's just passed but having said that quite a bit harder still probably means over 96 percent renewable it may be 97 or 98 instead of closer to the 99 percent renewable mm. it's, it's 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 pretty good it's pretty good actually getting that far isn't it i mean maybe we shouldn't be so obsessed with 100 percent renewables although i guess it's a big round number it's got two round numbers in it <laughs> yeah i mean one thing to consider is you know i 
in the article I wrote, I, I put an estimate of the uh, the grid emission intensity, and I gave two estimates. One is just using direct emissions, and one is using um, full life cycle emissions. And I guess that's one thing to um, be considered is, yeah, you know, obviously, building a wind and solar farm, you know, is, is not without any. Um, it still takes emissions to build the wind and solar, and you know, we could get rid of all um, gas backup if you like by a large amount of overgeneration, but you know, at the end of the day, um, you know that takes extra emissions to build all the extra wind and solar farms, and there is going to be an ideal, optimal location somewhere between the two that um, that gives the full minimum amount of life cycle emissions. <laughs> mm, yeah, just on a slightly unrelated um, thing. I mean, just um, actually just drawing on your position as sort of you know, principal um, engineer with WinLab. What can you sort of tell us about the sort of, um, uh, I mean, are you sort of looking at sort of, you know, sort of turbines and connecting turbines? And what can you sort of tell us about the size of turbines? I, mean, I think we're getting up to about six megawatts now onshore. They're obviously going to be much bigger than that offshore. I mean, what sort of things are you looking at? I mean, how much bigger will they get, do you think, in Australia? Um, is that even something that we should even be worried about talking about? <laughs> yeah, well, there, um, there are, yeah, the, certainly every model that comes out is a bit bigger and a bit more powerful. Um, and, you know, so most of the ones we're looking at now, maybe, you know, five to seven gil, sorry, five to seven megawatts in power and, you know, of order 160 uh, meter diameter. Uh, but then if you're looking five years in the future, it might be sort of eight or nine megawatts and, and close to 200 metre rotor diameter. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the rotor diameter, um, you know, w whether it starts running into um, roadblocks because, you know, obviously transporting turbine blades is difficult and some of the turbine manufacturers are having split blades to avoid that. Uh, but it will be interesting to see what happens over the next decade or so, whether we start to reach these limits. I'd, I'd add that the pace of technology development has been so fast that, in fact, the, uh, the turbine developers themselves the, uh, have, have had problems in not getting uh, the full benefit of, of a current model before a new model is introduced. So that this means, in the end, that consumers are sort of paying a price because of the fact that the... Uh, turbine developers don't get to fully depreciate, if you like, the the the, uh, the the engineering that goes into a particular model. In addition, the turbine manufacturers are not making any money uh, at the moment. And as I previously noted, Vestas, uh, at least a quarter ago, uh, was running at a cash flow loss, never mind a profit loss. And there are significant supply chain disruptions getting turbine blades out of Asia uh, all around the place and the global demand for turbines is going to be absolutely incredible uh, uh, you know because everyone is going to be chasing them uh, uh, so there are quite a lot of issues and in my opinion there'd be an argument for standardizing on a particular size uh, for a while and just building hundreds of the bloody things and getting it done and Giles at some point in this conversation as good as these uh, 96 renewable studies or 100% make us feel, we need to come back to the fact that we're 23% today and how are we going to get to 30% in a couple of years' time? Well, we might have to come to that very soon, David. I've just got one last question um, um, for David and um, for David Osmond. And um, 
I could really just slipped out of my bloody head. Unbelievable. Um, what happened? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It's about you talking about those huge turbines. Um, because my understanding is that um, some of those projects which are being built now, and they're looking to install 100 or 150 turbines, they're not that readily accessible. I mean, there's actually going to be a bit of a challenge taking these things by road up the side of hills, um, up windy roads and things like that. Um, there's going to be an awful lot of people with lollipops and around there stopping traffic and, and possibly even more compli complicated than that. It, it is, uh, it is very, it's, a, it's amazing watching them uh, get transported. And, and that's one of the ironies that, uh, that you want to, um, you know, that wind farms tend to be built on top of mountains, which is very difficult to transport to. Um, not only that, they're, um, they're built in windy places, which makes it very difficult to construct them as well, trying to use a crane to lift up a massive sail in effect uh, when trying to find Jeez. a not windy day yeah. to do that. But actually yeah. going back to your previous question about trends in, in, in wind turbines. And so one of the key trends is uh, the swept area is increasing faster than the generator capacity. And so essentially that means you've got more swept area per kilowatt of capacity than you did 10 years ago. Which and means so what? So Low wind speed efficiency. Yeah, so it, it generally means you get higher capacity factors. So if um, these these turbines are designed for lower wind speed sites, whereas you know a decade or two decades ago we we're developing really really windy sites. Uh, these days we're you know most of the really windy sites are gone, and we're developing sort of slightly less windy sites. And because they're slightly less windy, uh, the turbine manufacturers can uh, make the really long blades that that can withstand this you know they, they wouldn't be able to withstand the really windy conditions but they can withstand the medium wind conditions so it means they can put more blades on them and because it's capturing more swept area or more air passing through they're able to generate higher capacity factor than a shorter blade um, and so that means even though we've developed most of the best wind sites, the capacity factors are still going up because the because they've got longer blades relative to the generator capacity. Good stuff. Look, um, David. Um... And I should I should I should make I want to make one other final point, uh, which I've made a, which we've made a couple of times before, because the conservative people out there will argue not just about the wind droughts, but also about the cost. And the other headline number you see is how many X billions, where X is a big number, like over 100 billion of capital cost that has to be invested. But uh, the argument that they forget is that you don't have to pay for all the coal and the gas. So it doesn't necessarily mean that in real terms, the electricity price will be a lot different to what it is today. Although the things that go into the electricity price in terms of the capital cost and the fuel cost will certainly be a lot different. Yeah, in well, fact, David, you actually come up with a price, don't you, for your for your modelling? Yeah, I, I estimated a cost of eighty six dollars a megawatt hour for for mine. So that incorporated the the cost of the wind, the solar, the batteries, the hydro, the storage, and the extra transmission, um, which you know, is is a lot cheaper than the last twelve months. But it, it's kind of comparable to the last five years. Um, you know, we've had times where it's been above it, times where it's been below. But but it. Yes, to try to give an indication that it will be comparable to what we've paid um, historically, but 
we'll be less um, susceptible to these extreme fossil fuel prices that happen every now and again when whenever well, a war just, breaks out. I was, just, I was just looking at I was just looking at France and Germany actually, and their sort of um, uh, average um, year ahead prices, average price for 2023 uh, um, last week uh, peaked above 1,000 euros a megawatt hour, so that's about 1,500 dollars a megawatt hour. So I'm sure that um, 86 dollars a megawatt hour locked in for the life of those wind and solar projects would be um, quite attractive proposition right now so um <laughs> to, to right now but i my in my view it's still too high i want to compete with china i want a, a, aluminium manufacturing or similar in australia uh, to be cheaper than it is in china uh, because we've got better uh, wind and solar resources so i'm hoping that you know continued technology cost reductions I uh, can see us end up with a lower price than that. Okay. I, I'd like to see something below a seven. Below a seven. Um, David Osmond, is that possible? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, you don't have to extrapolate too far in the future before they're, they're likely to be beaten. And particularly for a really big wind or solar project. So those those costs may be um, reasonably representative of a mid-sized wind or solar project. But when you get the economies of scales of the really big ones, then then, yeah, we should be able to get a lot cheaper than that. Yeah. Now, Giles, and that brings me to a current point about current prices. Firstly, to observe that the spot gas price in Australia has halved uh, over the last month. It's now down to only $20 a gigajoule from $40 a gigajoule. Oh, praise, uh, be. praise be, praise be, hallelujah. Um, uh, the other thing I want to observe, though, is that the due to, and you wrote an article about this in May, uh, the renewable energy certificate prices have absolutely taken off, uh, you know, and pretty much looking at $50 uh, or $30 right out to 2028, as far as I can see, uh, 29. And, and uh, this is me. I mean, wind and solar guys must be, uh, you know, this is like, uh, I, I hate to use the phraseology on the podcast, but they're probably pretty happy with the with how things are at the moment, we've got the black electricity price, or, or the, the you know, plus plus the REC price, and so although there are, you know you're just going to get a lot of new projects, uh, are all of a sudden going to get very exciting and just developed. And what we really need, it's all very well for AMO always talks its book in this electricity statement of opportunities, and for AMO's book is that there's never enough supply, right? And nine out of ten. Uh, statement of opportunities, you'll see AEMO saying we need more supply. This time they're certainly correct uh, a, a, as anything, but their job is not just to complain about the new supply. Their job really is to make sure it all bloody well gets connected nice, fast and efficiently and that the transmission's there. And, you know, they should be writing a report on themselves as how good a job they did about that. You know, I'd like to see some metrics about the average plant was... Uh, was farm was connected within X months, and this was uh, you know 20% worse than last year or 10% better, uh, and our uh, ability to get transmission developed and organised and financed uh, to the extent that AEMO is in charge of that. Well, here's the metrics on that. We need to see some measurements out of AEMO, not just complaining about how much how we need new supply, which everyone knows. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that David Osmond's sitting there saying, oh, shit, I hope Giles doesn't ask me about the connection process with their email because that would just be really, really awkward. But um, I'm going to ask you, you, you might just want to say, you're, you're quite welcome to say, look, you know, I just don't really want to comment about that. But um, is, is, is there signs of improvement? I know there has been frustrations in the, in, in the past um, over the commissioning and the connection processes and stuff like that. Is there anything that you could possibly say without getting sacked and ruining a relationship with a market operator? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, no, unfortunately, I, I can't really comment on that. Um... No, that's all good. No, we're going to move straight along from that and, and um, 
and uh, that's terrible of me to ask. Um, David, another thing about the market cap has been lifted today. I'm still trying to get my mind around that. Um, it's going to be regressively lifted from 15000 or $15,500 a megawatt hour up to about $21,000 a megawatt hour. The administrative price cap is being lifted. I mean, clearly this is sort of actions which are being forced upon it by the increased price of fossil fuels and gas in particular. Um, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing that is just inevitable and we can't avoid? Um, it's kind of interesting to see what's happening in Europe where they're looking at the gas price thinking, bloody hell, that's ridiculous. We're paying that price for every single megawatt hour of electricity that's produced. Can't we separate that out? Can't we actually just reap the benefits of having lots of renewables? They're looking at either splitting the market or putting a cap on the price on, on, on the price of uh, gas-fired generation. But in Australia, we seem to be increasing it. I haven't quite decided what to make of it. Well, if you're talking to this, David, uh, I would say that the price cap... I was, actually. <laughs> the, this, the price cap never mattered that much historically. Like, it got up there, like with the cumulative price, which uh, historically really only was an issue in South Australia, where AGL used to manipulate it up to within a dollar of the cumulative price threshold and, and, and then, you know, let it fall off a few dollars. Uh, that's a bit harsh for me to say that, but that's the way it looked a few years ago. Uh, and we don't worry about the price cap because historic, you know, no one wants to be paying $15,000 a megawatt hour or $20,000 a megawatt hour. That is a sign that, that, that things are, have gone wrong, you know, when we hit that uh, price threshold. Uh, it's the same as when the price is minus a thousand or minus five hundred. That's that's wrong as well, you know, in a sense. But those those limits and barriers uh, e e exist, and I don't myself have uh, much of a problem with them in the f in the first thing. What I do think is a reasonable debate to have is this debate about uh, whether um, um, short-run marginal cost or, 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 or um, merit order pricing actually works when the vast majority of uh, generation is solar and wind, uh, uh, which has a short-run marginal cost of zero, and where the bidding behaviour is going to be driven by the nature of the PPA, and in fact it will be negative at the moment because uh, because REC prices are minus are fifty dollars, you can bid down to minus fifty and still be still be making money. So there is a case, I think, that the uh, you know, and storage is going to drive that a lot as well. As we get more storage, the question is, will will that bid up the midday price? from what otherwise is going to be an oversupply situation. So the pricing systems uh, need to evolve and we need to think more about it, Giles. Yeah. Well, at the moment, I mean, we get these, these times where we're getting more than 50% of our supply from wind and solar, and they're supposed to be cheap, but we just don't see that reflected in the prices because at that stage, at that level, um, you know, gas is setting the price. And even if you only got 10 megawatts of something which is charging, you know, at or near the market cap, then that flows through to the whole market. So it's kind of interesting what's being thought about and discussed in Europe and also in the UK, I should, I should say, that they're... Um, but th that's um, okay. I mean, that's always been the case, and that works because the gas guy needs to make a return. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the solar guy needs to make a return, right? You can't have the price set at short-run marginal cost all the time, right? That's zero for solar and wind. But that's what, that's what if the price solar people do. They do a PPA. They, they do a long-term PPA. Yeah, but the long-term PPA depends on having a, is related to the spot price, right? The spot price, in the end, has to, will, will drive the PPA price. That's the way it works. The PPA price reflects what uh, an expectation of spot prices. You cannot always have spot prices at zero, right? The market just doesn't work at all if that is the case. 
Uh, investors have to be able to earn return. We need new investment. That's the great thing about the high prices is it's going to induce lots and lots of new investment. Uh, 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 and there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Uh, 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 the, the only question is whether, whether, whether in the long run, uh, how are we going to deal with these consistently low prices that we're going to see in the middle of the day? Like we've seen yeah. high prices this winter, but in spring, right? You, you watch in two months' time, uh, prices will be a lot lower in, in spot prices. David, we've got to, both David's got to wrap up. David Osmond, I just wanted to sort of ask, um, WindLab um, is now, um, it's a bit of a shame actually, it's sort of an, one of these many listed companies that was taken private, so we can't see the day-to-day -day activities and we don't get all this little information that we used to get about the performance of sort of operations. You're now majority owned by Squadron Energy. You probably can't talk much about plans and things like that, but um, should we expect um, more projects coming up from, from I presume, what is now a deep-pocketed um, uh, renewable developer. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't provide much detail at all, but we're, we're all very excited at WinLab. I, I think we'll we'll be hearing some good news. Good how, how much is, how much are your employee numbers up over the past year, Dave? Oh, that's a good question. I think we're I think we might be up around eighty or ninety these days. So yeah, it's been a Crikey. very large very large increase in the last year or two. Um, we had a we had a gathering a few months ago and yeah, it was uh, it was interesting to see there was a lot of people I had no idea who they were. <laughs> <laughs> Name tags everywhere. Name tags everywhere. Look, David, um, we do know that you've got to get moving on to your next appointment. Um, look, thank you so much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Once again, congratulations on your work and thank you very much for your diligence and um um, look, a really great, um, a valuable piece of um, of data and analysis um, for the debate and um, about the green energy transition in Australia. Thank you very much. Yeah, and uh, thank you, David. Um, thank you to all the listeners out there. Um, we'll be back um, next week with another podcast. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. Thanks to you for listening once again, and bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.